The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How did the Chinese see these issues? By the 1800s, the mechanical clock had become a status symbol for wealthy Chinese. Merchant families display their clocks like Europeans have showed off pineapples. They decorated clothing with buttons that looked like clock faces, and one family even embroidered a clock onto their baby's silk bib. This is just one example of the cultural fusion that happened in the Qing Dynasty's dying century. You can see these exhibits in the British Museum's ongoing show, China's Hidden Century. This era is commonly known in China as a century of humiliation, but the exhibition reveals a time that was more than just about national suffering. Foreigners brought gunboats and opium with them, but there was also an ongoing conversation between the Qing and the foreign, the Chinese and the Western, in culture, fashion, politics, ideas. The experiences of this century were integral to China becoming a modern state in the 20th century. I reviewed the exhibition in The Spectator last month, and I also recorded a live Chinese whispers at the British Museum for a small audience of exhibition goers. My guests were the historian Geoffrey Wasserstrom and journalist Isabel Hilton. You can hear our discussion about the contradictions and complexities of the period here. I was born in China. I grew up there and uh, I studied there until probably halfway through primary school. So I had a lot of CCP education on, and history. My idea of that last century of the Qing dynasty was very much coloured by that very nationalistic upbringing. I taught all about the century of humiliation, the unequal treaties. I actually felt a bit emotional seeing the Treaty of Nanjing in the exhibition hall. So I was delighted to see in the Great Exhibition, all about the vibrancy of life during that period, um, the positive impact of interactions with foreigners, the everyday concerns of mothers who just wanted their children to be safe from evil, all of that sort of stuff that comes out in the everyday items. So I thought in this discussion, Jeff and Isabel, we could pick out some of those myriad dynamics of that era to, so that's not just a story of loss and oppression and pain and humiliation, but... Perhaps a history lesson would be good, Jeff, to start with, because there will be people listening at home who don't know much about that period and probably never even heard of the term century of humiliation before. So I wondered if I could start with you to give a historian's overview of the century and just why it was such a turbulent time for China. Sure. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be back on. And actually, we, the two of us were joining you from a distance right after the white paper protests that were so dramatic uh, back in November and had uh, a really, really exciting discussion right after as an event was in the headlines. So it's a kind of nice twist to now be looking back in time at um, the 19th century and the early 20th century, which are part of this long uh, 19th century, as, as um, Julia Lovell describes it in the brilliant introduction to the volume titled um, China's Hidden Century, the same title as the exhibition. Um, and it has chapters in it by some of the people who I most like to read on this um, period. And I particularly want to mention Anna Gerritsen's chapter on um, global trade, because I think that's one of the themes that comes out 
is the idea that what's sometimes said as a misconception is that China and the West were not in as much contact in the, around 1800 as they had been before. Trade between China and the West was limited to, um, to Canton and Macau. And sometimes that leads people to think that China was cut off from the world. But in fact, there was a lot of trade between China and other places. They were places like in Southeast Asia. There was a lot of flow there. And China itself was not the shape that China is now. O over the course of the Qing, the map that comes to your mind when you think about China includes places that the Qing were trading with and absorbing and conquering to make that map that now is, is set there. And I think that's one of the things you probably didn't learn about growing up was that um, there were territories, Xinjiang among them, it's called new borders. That's because it was newly incorporated into an empire. So the Qing was an empire is one of the first things to remember and empires tend to be um, expanding. So whereas something like the Opium War is often seen as China versus the West, it's a clash of empires the British Empire, then the biggest in the world, the Qing, one of the expanding empires. So one of the things about a whole sense of China in decline sometimes forgets that the Qing was expanding. But in that, on the sort of more positive side, it was a time of a great deal of kind of cosmopolitan interconnection um, between places. And that's something that shows through in the exhibition in things like new painting styles being adopted and George Washington as one of the people um, painted. There were also borrowings from other parts of the world as well. And then so the 19th century is often seen as a period of wars, destructions, rebellions, challenges to the Qing that almost toppled the Qing at several points. But one of the extraordinary things is the Qing survives through the 19th century and into the beginning of the 20th century, in part by having to adapt in different kinds of ways. And um, I'll jump forward to, to my chapter, uh, which is the last one in, in this volume on reform to revolution. And there, too, I think there's a different way of thinking about cosmopolitanism as a theme, blendings as a theme, because you probably grew up thinking of, in part, nationalism, that this was a time of—and of, one thing when we think about nationalists, we think about them as drawing on things within— the nation that they're, they're trying to create or trying to, to reestablish. And that certainly was part of it. And in fact, the revolution of 1911 was partly about restoring China to Chinese rule, ethnic Chinese rule after a Manchu Qing, Qing rule. But Sun Yat-sen, in leading it, was drawing very eclectically from Western ideas. And he was inspired at one point by the Philippine uprising that had uh, pushed back against a, uh, a powerful place and tried to tried, but not successfully because of American intervention, to establish an independent place. So you have, if you think beyond just China and the West, and I think that's probably what an overemphasis on China and the West as the two things is probably what you had in common, what had in common you growing up and, um, and somebody growing up with a very different thing. And I'll just mention one more thing, because it's actually, it was an interview with Cindy that really caught my, caught my attention about her. Quartz did an interview her, with her, and she mentioned that one surprise she had when she came to the UK as, as a child was that nobody seemed to have heard of the eight allied armies, the Baguilianjun, which is when you learn in China about the year 1900, 
That's what you hear about, the invasion of China by a consortium of soldiers from all over the place, from Western powers, but the Western powers, say Britain was part of the invading force, had largely Indian uh, soldiers. Uh, the French largely had what we now think of as Indo-Chinese soldiers. The, American, um, the Americans were involved, the Russians were involved. But when you grow up in America or in Britain, if you hear about what happened in 1900, you hear about something called the Boxer Rebellion. And this is, you hear about something where, um, where um, Chinese people killed missionaries and threatened diplomats. And instead of that, in, growing up in China, you hear about this invasion that crushed that. And often what both sides leave out, again, because I think it's important to figure out what both sides have in common, you kind of forget that the main people killed in both the cases of the uprising and the invasion were ordinary Chinese who might be Christian in the case of the boxers killing them and non-Christian mm -hmm. in the case of the invaders killing them. But this kind of weaving together. And so that's, I think, when I, when I thought about writing the chapter and having it fit with the exhibition, something beyond just China and the West, to think about other kinds of flows and, um, and interpolation, and also thinking about ordinary people. And then one of the things that surprised me as I was writing about it is we often talk about how little awareness there is of China right now, and there is very little awareness of um, China in America and in Britain. There are many people in China and Britain who can only name one powerful person in China, if they can, Xi Jinping. And granted, he's incredibly powerful, so there's a reason why maybe you can only name one. But in around 1900, ordinary people in America and Britain who were following the news, so this, those people, could name the Empress Dowager. They knew who she was. They also knew this guy, Li Hongzhang, who was one of the most powerful officials. He was so well-known, and there's a snuff bottle in the exhibition that, that shows him, but he was so well-known that there was a tradition of naming racehorses after famous people. In the, in the 19th century, and there were Li Hongzhang racehorse, racehorses. There was also an American magazine that said, the Democrats are trying to decide who to run as the vice president on their ticket. Well, going forward, it really seems like having a better relationship to the Qing court would be very useful for us. So why don't we nominate Li Hongzhang? Because he seems to have the ear of the court. So anyway, those are the... <laughs> history tidbits, and you can decide whether it seems like a proper history lecture or what I've been watching, binge watching on television that I'm here, kunk on uh, Chinese uh, history or not. I hope it's more. Everything is accurate. Don't confuse well, me with Well, we've got Lana Mitter in the front row, so I'm sure we'll hear if anything is not accurate. <laughs> um, and Isabel, just on that theme of it's not just the West versus China, as Jeff has already hinted at, there was also a lot, a lot of internal civil unrest because there was a Taiping Rebellion and then also the Boxer Rebellion. So the Chinese were fighting against the empire or some... some Parts of the empire were fighting against some parts of the empire internally. Tell us about that. Well, it, and there was also, of course, um, repeated uh, insurgency in the Xinjiang, in the newly acquired territories of Muslim rebellions. So there was a lot going on. And I think maybe one other pressure that we haven't really heard of so far, the, the exhibition focuses for entirely in understandable reasons on the pressure from the West, as it were, the, the, which which was largely from the southern um geographies of China, 
But up north, you had an expanding empire from Russia, which was putting enormous pressure um, as it expanded east. And in fact, if you look at which bits of the Chinese or the Manchu map remained in foreign hands, it's not Hong Kong. It's uh, quite a lot of Manchuria. <laughs> well, indeed, <laughs> all of that is actually Chinese territory, which we sort of don't mention. And the other element was Japan. And what is so interesting about looking at this exhibition is is reflecting on how much of China's 20th century and actually 21st century concerns are, are clearly visible in what's going on in that exhibition. So you have the whole question of identity. You know, had had China, had the empire ceased at the end of the Ming dynasty, you would have had a fairly clear nationalist proposition. You have Han Chinese empire. The, the, the Qing doubled the size of China. If you look at the map of the, of the Ming, you know, the Great Wall's in the middle of the country now, if you look at the map of the Qing. And so all those borderlands, and of course the Manchu themselves, as we've heard, were, were people of the borderlands, and they had different relationships with those people than the Han Chinese mm. did and the subsequent uh, regimes did. So with Tibet, for example, there was a priest-patron relationship because the Qing emperors had an enormous spiritual respect for the Dalai Lama. They didn't regard themselves as having conquered Tibet. They regarded it as a, one of these modulated relationships that they had with the borderlands. The relationship with Han was altogether, certainly in the beginning of the Qing, more complicated. There was an apartheid. So, you know, you, the Han Chinese weren't allowed to live in the, in the Manchu parts of Beijing. They kept records, as we've seen in the exhibition, in their own language as well as in Chinese. And it was a very different relationship. So come the end of this period, when China has to decide what it is to be Chinese and how you construct a nation out of this mosaic, it becomes very complicated. And it goes on being complicated to this day, as we see. So it's it's really interesting. And I think the other thing that um, the exhibition left me with was that sense of a, a country, a, an empire, confronted with an idea of modernity, with the reality of modernity, of industrialization, of economic power, of industrial power. And struggling to deal with that. And as we know, the Chinese reflected very hard through this period as to what had gone wrong. How did, you know, how did these strange pirates appear and, and appear to be stronger than we are when we are, you know, the strongest thing we know? Um, it was particularly true in the case of Japan, who were referred to throughout the documentation of the Qing dynasty as dwarves. You know, and, and the idea that the Japanese should defeat the great Qing empire was intolerable. And this precipitated a flood of translation of as they as they, they said there must be some secret here. So there was a wonderful translator called Yen Fu who translated cascades of Western writing, some of it, you know, engineering and kind of practical stuff, but but not all of it. So you had things like social Darwinism as an idea, some sort of attracting enormous interest in China as they struggled with the question of identity. You had the whole question of how you use language in China, because the court records tended to be in class. Chinese, unavailable to, to the masses of the people. There was a, a parallel sort of literary development going on throughout this period with the development of the novel and the short story, which actually written by officials sort of clandestinely because using the vernacular wasn't really done. But they were creating a literature which also dealt with questions of identity and society in entirely new ways. So all of this was, you know, happening as, as the, the power of the Qing declined and all these pressures which were going to create what followed were clearly visible and it's just a fascinating period.
And I want to bring it to that modern comparison as well, as you've already hinted at, that this, the story of nationalism from the end of that period is very, very complicated. Because on the one hand, you want to expel these non-Han barbarians. You know, the, the revolutionaries in the Republic called them Tatars because they were kind of comparing them to kind of barbarians. On the other hand, you want to retain all that territory. And even today, you know, that complicated nationalist uh, narrative is adopted by the Chinese Communist Party to, you know, have certain claims over Tibet or Xinjiang or whatever it is even though they also want to reject some of the racial elements as well. So, Jeff, I wondered if you can talk about how knowing, understanding this period kind of informs how we can talk about the CCP's view of the world today or Chinese people's view of the world today as well. As you mentioned, the Bagualian during the Eight-Nation Alliance, which is something I think is almost not political. I mean, it goes beyond, it permeates society in an everyday level. Yeah, there are. I mean, there it, it does permeate things. And I think the intensity of awareness of certain moments in the Chinese um, past is very related to contemporary things. So, for example, I mentioned the Bago Lianjun. When NATO bombs hit um, the Chinese embassy in Belgrade in um, 1999, and there were three Chinese uh, people who were killed, uh, there were then big demonstrations outside of the American embassy and the British embassy demanding that, you know, to, trying to threaten um, the people in those, in those places. And the Boxer Rebellion had threatened diplomats in central Beijing. So American newspapers said, it's not 1900 people, you know, haven't you moved on? But the Chinese press, with I think greater actually um, uh, use of, of historical sensitivity, because the protesters hadn't killed anybody, said thought that NATO had some of the same characters in it and some of the same people, uh, some of the same countries in it, that the eight allied armies had been. And they said, wait a minute, there's a group of foreign powers that are going uh, to another part of the world and Chinese people are dying again. It's not 1900, folks. Uh, so there was this idea where both sides were reaching back to the same point in history, but thinking of it in a totally um, different way. And I think, you know, this is this shapes contemporary policy. So in other words, when, when um, the CCP now talks about things that I think are absolutely egregious in the way they're talking about uh, the invasion of Ukraine, it resonates in a certain way when they say, we've got to keep in mind that NATO, that mm -hmm. allied groups of Western powers have a long tradition of doing certain things. So you can criticize that and you can criticize it, but you need to know what the assumption is when you're criticizing it. And so I think that's one reason that it's important um, to the CCP. What I wish, if, if somebody from the Chinese Communist Party saw this exhibition, one thing I would love for them to take note of uh, is a part I love, and Jessica Harrison Hall and the team that put this together, I think it's a, it's a wonderful thing to have done. There's a wonderful magazine called Dian Shijai that's an illustrated magazine influenced partly by the um, Illustrated London News of the time, um, owned by uh, a foreigner, but with artwork that is beautifully done by, by Chinese hands, um, that's in Chinese ink drawing style, but also drawing on other things that shows some of the new machines from around the world, some of this modernity that China is becoming face Liverpool train station Facebook. opening. Village cricket in in England, <laughs> very and it, pastoral scenes. And it, to me, provides this wonderful sense, yeah, of a place where there's this blending, and it's and and something that's new and wonderful art is coming out of that. 
that kind of couldn't exist if this wasn't a special place. So the lesson I would like them to take is the most beautiful example of recent art, um, artistic creation in China, to my mind, the one thing that when Beijing wants soft power that people around the world were admiring and saying we should do more like that was Hong Kong cinema. Hong Kong cinema doesn't exist without Hollywood, but it doesn't exist without Chinese storytelling traditions. It doesn't exist without uh, martial arts. It then influences Hollywood. The Matrix doesn't exist without Hong Kong film. Um, the latest um, Oscar award winner, um, Everything Everywhere All at Once, doesn't exist without Hong Kong cinema. And yet this kind of impatience or unwillingness to accept uh, and you know to squash Hong Kong and to squeeze out that kind of difference within a country. So to think about there are times when China has been most admired and most flourished when there was a willingness to allow local things to flourish. And that's, I think, a, a mistake. Mm. And Isabel, one thing that really struck me from the exhibition was this bib, this baby bib with a clock face embroidered on it. And that was just one item where mechanical clocks had been incorporated into very traditional everyday items or even art forms. Um, so I think that was at, even though that was at the time when uh, you know all of this foreign pressure was coming, the opium wars were raging. So what does that say about the I guess, you know, how much Chinese society was always kind of was quite open-minded or intrigued by the foreign, by the Western, but well, at the same time when this political elite level stuff was going on, is that like a split in, in how it's going on? Or inevitably are people in war zones always a bit uh, having to have to be in two minds about how they feel about people uh, coming over? Well, I think there's always a curiosity about about uh, new new objects in a mechanical clock was, you know, both, you know, intriguing, attractive and rather useful. Um, I mean, the first encounters, as you know, were not particularly promising when, when Western delegations were trying to impress Chinese um, emperors with, with the gifts that they brought. They tended to get rather snooty responses. And we were, <laughs> things like, well, we have no need of your trinkets. And by the way, if we cut off your supplies of rhubarb, you'll really be in trouble. And that, rhubarb, you know, really? What's that? Rhubarb. Um, it's said to both to the um, to the Russians and, and indeed to Queen Victoria, who was clearly so alarmed by the thought of no more rhubarb, that, uh, <laughs> changed her behaviour immediately. Um, so, so the kind of, you know, the exchange of goods is part of this, um, uh, the exchange of goods and, and the kind of, how you adapt to um, how how behaviour is read. I mean, this was a whole series of misencounters throughout this century. Um, and in some ways, um, the, the, the people who did best at this, without any doubt, were the Jesuits. Because mm. there was a sort of understanding somehow of the nature of power between the Jesuits and the and the and the Chinese emperor. Um, and the Jesuits were also rather good at things like um, uh, astrological instruments so you can still see or I don't know if they're still there but there were still instruments on the remnants of the wall in Beijing which had been left by by the Jesuits and installed by the Jesuits so they brought a mixture of um, a, a philosophical respect um, and they maintained a philosophical respect they weren't particularly evangelical science understanding and and cultural sensitivity that was by far the most successful in this encounter between between outside and inside china um they also learned the language things that a lot of um, rather more shallow encounters somehow failed to do um so so i would look to them to see how to uh, how yeah. to approach the problem now 
And as well, it was also a fusion of political ideas, wasn't it? Because, you know, there were certain ideas that the Europeans brought over with them from kind of Westphalian government system of seeing the international relations uh, that they brought over from Europe that at least I've read, uh, China didn't really fully understand at the time, you know, this idea that these other countries could be equal to you and you could have treaties and then you could have some kind of basis for international law, which it later became. And that's one thing that the CCP still now says, you know, that the international order right now is rooted in Western traditions. How true is that, that China didn't have that kind of intellectual tradition the same as the Westphalian? Well, they certainly didn't have the intellectual tradition. I mean, you have to remember that the Chinese empire was the biggest thing that the Chinese knew. And, and so all the periphery were regarded as, in some form, subordinate or tributary states. But this was also two-way traffic. I mean, if you had carved your way to the throne as a new Chinese emperor, you had to establish legitimacy within, within China too, particularly if you'd murdered several close relatives to get there, as, as, as frequently happened. So one way of establishing legitimacy was to have a parade of you know, tributary uh, rulers come and and pay homage to you. They would bring gifts, usually their second best horse, but it was jolly expensive for you because you had to entertain them lavishly to demonstrate the superiority of your power. And they entire delegations as well. It was a whole thing. Sometimes they'd stay for months, you know, eating (laughs) at your expense. But all of this was an important demonstration of power. So I think we need to understand these things always as, you know, reciprocal. There There was something in it for everyone in this relationship, but it certainly wasn't Westphalian. And the idea that there could be you know, sort of trade agreements as of right, or that, you know, that sort of relationship could be imposed by um, countries you'd never heard of and yeah. who looked rather weird. That that did come as a bit of a surprise, yeah. So stuff like the Treaty of Nanjing at the end of the first Opium War loss would have been come, come as a, conceptually a very big shock. <laughs> so so what I, if I can jump in, what I, what I think is worth thinking about with all of this is we don't want to flatten it out and say, Different parts of the world are the same and different cultures. There, aren't, there is such a thing as cultural differences, but cultures are often multi-stranded and we often simplify them when we look back. And here I'll think about this. I just did an event recently with Mary Beard and I was thinking while Isabel was, was talking about there were these parades of tribute by Roman, empires, by Roman emperors and it, wouldn't it be great to have a dialogue between Mary Beard on that and Jeremy Barmay who writes, has written The Forbidden City book in the same series that uh, Wonders of the World that Beard has uh, the Parthenon book in and the Colosseum book. But we think, so if we talk about the Western tradition, sometimes we want to think of it as the democratic tradition of Athens, but it was also the imperial tradition of Rome and that perks up in fascist moments. And then there are more democratic strands and there are more authoritarian strands within Western thought. Within Chinese thought, there are also more democratic and more authoritarian strands that aren't the same, but Mencius, Confucius's first great interpreter and part of the Confucian tradition, talked about the ruler uh, rules by the grace of heaven, but heaven hears with the ears and sees with the eyes of the people. Mm. So it wasn't exact. It was basically saying the people have a right to push back, to rise up, if uh, if a ruler is not being benevolent, which is not the same as democracy, but it is actually a kind of awareness of the popular of the popular will. So if we think of these multi-strandedness, and we can think about a strand within Chinese tradition that's more open to the outside world and more closed off, that's more autocratic or more democratic, um, that's something that's 
distressing right now as it seems the wrong traditions are ascendant, even though there's a discussion of a single tradition. And that's a trap that I think we need to try to guard against um, falling into, but we need to know a little bit more to have that sense. And we need to keep it in mind about our about the West, too. One of the novels that I was talking about um, actually reflects exactly what Jeff was talking about, Shui Hu Zhuan, uh, uh, which is um, The Water Margin or All Men Are Brothers, is the story of righteous uh, citizens who are driven to the margins and who you know, try and lead an armed struggle against, uh, against an, a corrupt uh, and tyrannical power. And that is very embedded in, in the way China, the Chinese think about power and the way statecraft has been constructed. But I'd also like to say that at, uh, in the century that we are talking about, particularly towards the end of it, there was very much a sense that the gods had failed us, you know, that Confucius was blamed for um, for keeping China backward. And now we, it's, it's quite strange to see Xi Jinping extolling Confucius. I've lived through many uh, versions of Confucius in my engagement <laughs> with China, from Pilin Pikong, you know, criticized Lin Biao and Confucius in the 70s, to the vilification of Confucius as the, as the as the symbol of everything that was reactionary, backward, and not modern, to you know, suddenly you know, justifying Xi Jinping. But at this time, there was a big questioning of, of Confucius. And I think that we also tend to look at um, Confucianism to the exclusion of other strands of Chinese philosophy, like legalism, which has actually been at, in the backbone, particularly of 20th and 21st century uh, Chinese statecraft. And that took the view that uh, people needed to be kept very strictly in line, otherwise, you know, they would they would do bad things and your power would be threatened. Whereas Confucius tended to argue that if the ruler was virtuous, then people would be attracted to come and live in the empire and there would be harmony. And these traditions both coexist within China, and certainly Mao Zedong admired Han Fei, the legalist scholar, very much more than Ian my Confucius. So again, you know, there are nuances here and there are nuances, again, in this exhibition that we need to be aware of. Mm. And before I turn to audience questions, I just wanted to ask you both to comment a bit on, on the women that we see in this exhibition. Jeff Isabel mentioned Queen Victoria and um, her contemporary was the Dowager Empress Cixi, who has a, a brilliant role in the exhibition and there's this quote from her where she says oh I've heard of Queen Victoria but in my view her life was not half as eventful as mine um, and Sissy is um, remembered very poorly in modern China today you know she, she's been blamed for a lot of Qing China's decline um, by, by later generations but what do you think as a, from a historian's perspective should we be rehabilitating her is she really the kind of um, fair weather empress that uh, modern Chinese remember her as, as or is there more to it than that? So I, I don't want to really weigh in on Zixi per se, except that I think we <laughs> need to go to the point where she's not the only woman from that period who we can think of. And this is, there's, there's an um, additional book um, coming out of the exhibition, which is a biography of 100 people with contributions by uh, scholars from all over the world. The, the catalog book, um, edited book with a small number of pieces is basically a dialogue between historians and art historians. The chapters are by both, but this has also ones by literary figures, including one um, by my Irvine colleague, Hu Ying, that talks about uh, Qiu Jin, who's a figure of incredible interest and that um, that I talk about in my, my chapter as well. Fascinating um, 
cross-dressing anarchist goes to Japan, brings ideas back from there. So she should be she should be well known um, globally as well. There are other um, there are other women that are talked about in the the book. Many of them, and throughout the exhibition, there is a an attention more attention to women than you would usually get in something like that. And there are um, there are male um, intellectuals who were very interested in female equality. And that's something else to bring into the story to get beyond a kind of mm-hmm. Tsushi versus Queen Victoria, which mm-hmm. would be a good subject for a podcast. Which you've just you skipped should, over. So you should well. find somebody who, who wants to go into that. But wait, I do have one woman. I wrote the, the chapter that I did uh, uh, in the biographies one. I wrote about another woman who's interesting, who was... Um, the wife of the American minister to the Qing court who was trapped by the boxers. Mm. And she thought the boxers were terrible. She thought God was, she also had these quite interesting ideas. She was an early Christian scientist. She thought God was putting his hand down and blocking bullets from the Qing and boxers from from hitting her. So it wasn't just the boxers who had some invulnerability uh, thoughts. But after, after it, after the foreign armies came in, she worried about an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth idea. And she hoped that there wouldn't be terrible retribution. And the Empress Dowager hoped that, they both hoped that this would never happen again, and they actually became friends. And there's a photograph of um, Sarah Pike Conjure and the Empress Dowager when the Empress Dowager decided to meet with foreign diplomats rather than support the boxers who attacked them. So Tsushi changed over time. And it's the only picture, photograph we have that shows um, Tsushi touching a foreigner that we know of. And when Sushi died... That's how you get monkeypox, Sarah... isn't it? <laughs> sorry, that's a reference ooh, to... That's, ooh, sorry, ooh, I should ooh. explain. That's a reference to um, very kind of febrile rhetoric at the end of last year when monkeypox was going around where, you know, certain state actors in China were saying you get monkeypox from touching foreigners. Anyway, mindful that that's not a reference that everyone gets. You um, said it. Yeah. Um, Isabel, can I just finish with you about women in this period... Would would be interested in your view on whether or not Sissy should be rehabilitated a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! Um, thank you, Jeff, for answering that question so fully. Or you could um, say Jiang Ching, you know. Uh, yes, well, 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 well in the, in the, in there, there are. She's not the only, you know, powerful woman who has has ended up very much on the wrong side of right. of, of judgment. You know, it, it goes goes back in history, and it's partly look. If you don't have direct access to power, you probably do have to resort to devious um, methods, uh, both to get it and keep it. And in her case. Uh, you know, the, the being keeping keeping the 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 emperors very young was one way to do it because she she stayed in power. I mean, I I don't really have I I haven't made a study of Tsushi. I have read other people's studies of Tsushi, and I have to say that I haven't been convinced that her moment is is has arrived for a full rehabilitation. Um, it was always pointed out, as as I'm sure it was to you, that the marble boat in the New Summer Palace in Beijing was pretty much all that was left of the money that was devoted to building a Chinese navy. And that was attributed to Tsushi, possibly unfairly. But I think there's a bit of a mountain to climb before she emerges as a heroine. And for act and for characters like Chiu Jing, um, and we also saw some f- works from female artists in the exhibition as well. So was this a time when women were being able to have this kind of intellectual pursuit more, or are they actually more notable for their rarity? I, I think they were pretty rare. Um, I mean, one one important difference between the Manchu and the Han, of course, was that the Manchu did not bind the feet of their women, or Manchu women did not bind their feet, I should say, which was, you know, partly a reflection of the sort of society that gave birth to the Manchu and the sort of society that Han China had become by then. But 
it, it was still pretty uphill, you know. It, it still is uphill. I mean, have you looked at the Central Committee lately? <laughs> well, actually, that... Or the Politburo. There's a great example from the Qing to bring in there, which is Hong Xiaoquan, the leader of the Taiping Uprising, wrote beautiful things about men and women were all children of God, so they should get equal land. But then he became like an emperor, and there were... Um, there was then things that certain kinds of rules about things didn't have to apply to the rulers. And we have things that we can imagine about the Chinese Communist Party had some very good uh, rhetoric. Women especially hold up Mao. Half the sky. Exactly. <laughs> and then you look at the statistics and it's quite terrible. Which I've done podcast episode on. So if you guys enjoyed this discussion, do have a look into Chinese Whispers as well. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming. I thought that was a really fascinating discussion. And you can, if you want to listen it back, you can hear it on Chinese Whispers in the coming weeks. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you so much, Isabel. And thank you so much for coming. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.